Hello and welcome to Called to Queer, where we hold space for the queer Mormon women, gender queer, and intersex experiences. I'm Colette, and my pronouns are she, her. And I'm Kate, and my pronouns are she, they. Today, we are interviewing Andres Brown, and we're so excited for this conversation. But before we jump into that, we want to start off by seeing what brought us queer joy this week. So Kate, what brought you queer joy this week? Yeah, so I decided this week, it was a hard week, so I decided to make a list of the queer people in my life who I have felt mothered by, and that was just really a cool experience because there are people that were on my list that I hadn't thought about that way before, that I hadn't realized that they protected me in ways that I needed to feel protected, or they introduced me to things that I didn't know about that were was really exciting for me. So I don't know, it's just like making this list of consciously thinking through what mothering for me looks like and what I expect from it and what I need from that and how queer people specifically have helped me through that. That's really cool. So we're actually recording this on Mother's Day, but that's a really cool way to celebrate in a different way. I love that. That was was fun. All right, cool. How about you? Um, So yesterday I met up with a friend at Beaumont Cafe here in Salt Lake. I think it's technically in Mill Creek. And I had heard about this place before, but had never been. And they just have these rainbow, like lots of different colored streamers hanging from the ceiling. So that brought me queer joy, just all the color. And then I totally saw a lesbian couple on a date. And they were just so cute and like holding hands and snuggling up with each other and they weren't afraid. And it's so nice to see queer love in public. And that also brought me queer joy. That reminds me, somebody on Instagram wrote, this is the first time that I saw lesbians in the wild, like recounting this experience of going to DC. And I was like, I thought only Colette said that. So (laughs) yes, finding other queers in the wild is awesome. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) All right, Andres, do you have a queer joy to share with us? Yeah, I've been thinking about this a little bit. And I feel like I have both like a professional like queer joy and a personal queer joy. And I think that they mirror each other a lot, actually. So one of the really interesting things that has been kind of theme in a lot of the work that I do is queer or gender euphoria, as opposed to gender dysphoria. And so I think it's been a really beautiful week, actually, for a lot of people that I work with as far as being able to experience gender euphoria and feel this sense of, there you are, I see you, or I see me in my reflection. And I went out with some friends last night, and I also had one of those moments where I was like, oh, and I was like feeling myself. And I kept telling my husband, I was like, why do I feel like so ecstatic and excited? And like every mirror I'm like looking and I was like, oh, this is gender euphoria. This is the thing. This is what it feels like. And so I think that my joy of being able to maybe recognize myself more and more in my reflection. Oh, I love that so much because <laughs> this is this has been such an emphasis, I think, for us recently is to say uh-huh. we focus so much on gender dysphoria when I think that mm-hmm. what being non-binary or trans or gender fluid is much more about gender euphoria than it is about totally. gender dysphoria. But totally. yeah, so very happy to hear that experience. Yeah. That's awesome. Yay. 
Well, we're excited to get to know you and introduce you to our listeners a little bit. So we want to start off by having you tell your queer in 60 seconds, your queer Mormon story, and then we can dive in from there. Yeah, as I've been thinking about this, I'm like, how does one consolidate a lifetime of conflict, of celebration, of resilience into 60 seconds? But I'll do my absolute best. And I know it's not timed or anything like that, but it's just, I think just in general, more and more, it's like, oh, how do I convey? How do I communicate so much of my story, even in hours? And so I think in a nutshell, I was, where do I start? Yeah, I am what I call a mezcla bella. My dad's an immigrant from Guatemala, and my mom is from Kaysville, Utah, Western European roots. We come from strong pioneer stock, and so was raised very much in the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. I often say that I was listening to hymns while in the womb. I'm the youngest of three, was raised by a single mother. My parents got divorced when I was pretty young, and we moved to California, grew up there, was a very good Mormon boy, did all the things that I needed to do, never complained about needing to go to early morning seminary, which was at like 5.55 a.m. before school. But I was like, yes, of course I'll go. All the things, served an LDS mission, went to Monterey, Mexico, really loved my mission loved the people, loved the experience. I think I feel conflicted about it now, about what that meant. And as my own relationship with spirituality and race and colonization and all of those things just feel like I'm like, oh, I don't know what to do with it. But at the time was an incredibly meaningful experience and then came back from my mission and went to the University of Utah and studied human development and family studies and psychology, was very involved in the institute, was in the Elders Quorum presidency, loved home teaching, would invite people over to my house every week for the game night at the church, was just very involved in it to win it, went to the temple multiple times a week. But I think in reflection, it was a real strong, which isn't an uncommon story, unfortunately, but a real strong push to try to counteract this real fear of badness, of evilness, of disqualification to heaven. And so I was like, oh, maybe I'll make up for it. Because I think I had a recognition fairly early on about queerness, about gender fluidity, loved Barbies and beautiful things and clothing has always been such a thing. And I remember I would sit and watch my mom and my sister put on makeup and do their hair and was just entranced by this whole experience would help my mom pick out her outfits. And so that was also a sweet memory that now I'm like, oh, that was a real early queer memory where I would sit on her bed or I would, she would like, while she was in the shower, I would go and pick out the different outfits and lay them on the bed with the accessories. And she got to pick from those things. And so I came out originally as same sex attracted as I think a lot of us do, but I was going to be the poster child for like how to make it work. And that lasted about three years. And then I started dating men when I was 24 and then had my first relationship. And that was when I kind of recognized that wasn't actually going to work, that there wasn't place for me. That was during the also 2014, 2015, when there was a real strong push out. And so moved to Oregon for my master's program. And that's where I really came into my queer identity which I think was a really beautiful, needed experience. I knew I needed to get out of Utah to really explore myself without kind of the, I needed a distance. And so 
Oregon really provided that. My cohort really provided that. And that's where I met my husband. And so we met, fell in love. He's from Sandy, Utah, went to BYU. And so I'm like, what the, right? Going to Oregon, finding this like cutie who also comes from some of the difficulty that I come from, but also recognizes all like the sunbeam hymns and all of those things. So it was a real, a real connection piece. We got married there, and then in 2019, we decided to come back to Utah, specifically for me to do this work, to work with LGBTQIA plus people from religiously conservative environments, to help families navigate the coming out process. My family did not know what to do with my coming out. They did the best they could, but it was a real difficult time for all of us. And we're still actually working on repairing fully what that means. I think that we've come strides and I am so proud of them and so grateful. We've had a lot of healing conversations, but I think there's still that that initial moment when we are feeling really vulnerable that we're still working on healing and repairing. So yeah, I identify as queer, I guess in my sexuality and sexual orientation, because I think that there is a ever evolving experience and queerness allows me a lot of space to explore and expound and every experience gets to be a part of my queerness as opposed to qualifying in this category, this category. And non-binary is my gender identity. I think my expression is maybe a little bit more fluid, but I'm noticing more and more that like femininity and feminine energy feels really strong in my expression, at least our traditional understandings of what femininity is, because I think that's a whole conversation in and of itself. But yeah. Wow, that is an incredible story, though. And I think that you hit all of the points. That was excellent. So I think starting out, making these distinctions for people about same-sex attraction, about Mm. queerness, about sexual orientation more generally, and about gender identity. I think that still people struggle to see how those things are separate from one another. Can you talk about how you came to know yourself in both? Oh, yeah. Great question. It's, it's interesting because I think for me, same-sex attraction, that phrasing is a real signal of how somebody conceptualizes my experience, how somebody Absolutely. views me, right? Because it comes from this real strong narrative from my religion of origin that said, do not identify with this piece of yourself. It's a struggle, it's a the cross you bear, that we all have trials, and my trial is to be same-sex attracted or to have same-sex attraction. And so I think what's really interesting is, as I've studied queer identity development, like academically and in my professional world and experienced it in it myself, I'm like, oh, actually the really important piece is that identity, that it is a piece of us, that my excitement at interacting with another human being, that my capacity to love and connect with a person, with people, is actually intrinsic to my identity as a human being. And so it shouldn't be and can't be separated. And it's not this thing that happens to me. It's a part of me, just like a lot of our roles are a part of us and a lot of our identities are a part of us. So that's for me, the big distinction is I think same-sex attraction, that languaging positions my queerness as solely this, do my pupils dilate when I see somebody of a certain gender? 
And that feels really reductionistic. That feels really like incongruent with who I am because I feel very attracted to like souls and energies and the whole person as well as like physical characteristics. I'm a sucker for a good beard. So yes, same-sex <laughs> attraction, I think, is would be that category. Did I, did I answer the question? Yeah. So I would like to pause here for a second yeah. because you said something that's really interesting to me in talking about it being part of your identity and connecting mm. with another person and showing that love and mm-hmm. that love towards someone else. I think for me, at least, the gender identity is that same thing, only pointed at ourselves, that we are like... We're examining how we love ourselves and what we love about ourselves and taking away the things that other people tell us that we need to like and need to love. Yes. Oh, so I really liked the way you explained that. I think that is so beautiful, right? Because I think so much of it is like just what brings us joy, what makes us excited, what feels congruent. That's really gender in a lot of ways. We often adhere to these certain norms that we're told, this is what you're supposed to like. This is what you're supposed to be good at. These are the skills. Do you have fine motor skills or can you like chop wood? These are the (laughs) distinctions. But in reality, a lot of it is, do I find value in like chopping wood? Does that bring me like joy and excitement? Or do I find value in like more... I'm thinking of like needlepoint for some reason. That's probably like deep whatever like socialization that I've been given. Um, (laughs) The two categories of experience, chopping wood and needlepoint. But I love that idea of like gender and gender identity and gender exploration is really the directionality is that introspection and then sexual orientation and sexuality can often be that external then that combination of this internal introspective process and this external connection with another human being. Yeah, I think that's cool. Mm. Yeah, yeah. I don't know if we want to go down the gender road just yet because you have so many interesting elements of your story that I want to get at. So you talked about growing up and seeing more feminine type things that you liked Mm. and growing up Mormon, those things are feminine, right? When you're Mormon, you're told this Mm. is a feminine thing and this is a masculine thing. Can you talk Mm. a little bit about gender within Mormonism and how those Mm. things are so fixed rather than maybe a different sort of family that experiments a little bit more with those boundaries? I think for me, where my, where the most incongruence came from me in the the Mormon context was the distinction between provider and protector and nurturer. And what I found so interesting very early on is I'm a nurturer. I care profoundly. I sometimes feel bad for walking on grass because I wonder, do I have, do I get to as like a mobile energy, get to like squash another energy? Like, is that fair? I do walk on grass. I like lying on grass and all of those things. But just to give you an insight of that's where I feel like my heart is, right? And I'm like aware of, I cry almost every single day. I cry when I see pretty flowers or when I see cute puppies. I once cried at a crumble cookie because it was so delicious. Like legit, I just started weeping because it was so beautiful. And so I think in this context where it said, oh, if you are assigned female at birth, you must be a really good nurturer and that's your role. 
And the counterpart to that is if you were assigned male at birth, you must be a provider and a protector. And these are organic traits. These are spiritual traits. These are eternal traits. And so I noticed very early on that like, I was like, shit balls. Can I swear? I was like, shoot balls. How am I going to develop this? How am I going to become a provider and a protector? I don't know how to do this. I'm a nurturer, right? Somebody cries and I'm there with them. When there's a really interesting story of when my parents got divorced, I think my mom was crying because of something. And I like had bought her fake flowers and had given them to her. And I remember saying that these were her flowers because maybe somebody wasn't ever going to buy her flowers again. So these would never die. And she still has them. Oh my goodness. And I was like five. So I was just this little ball of like love and connection. And But the role that I was given was you need to be able to defend. That was the type of energy that was constantly given to me. And I kept being like, how am I going to do this? I want to be a good man. But it felt like the way to be a good man was to be this maybe aggressive energy that felt so incongruent. So I think early on, that was my first recognition of these fixed points. And I think it shows up in a lot of the languaging that we do with young men versus young women. I think it shows up in the activities. It shows up in what we focus on, the scriptures that are like geared more towards men versus women. In in this culture, we understand that gender and even biological sex is more nuanced than that. But in our culture, that's often how it's framed. Colors, scripture cases, the type of scriptures. It was like yeah, the black and gold, yeah. the black and gold scriptures for the boys. And I ended up getting blue and silver, the blue and silver ones, because I was like, oh, it's so pretty and I love it. But I felt so self-conscious. The entire time, because I was like, oh, are people going to like know that I'm queer or gay or same-sex attracted because of scriptures? Yeah. And I hated that. Thank you for pointing those things out, because I don't think that people who who aren't thinking about their gender <laughs> constantly or doing gender studies or something don't recognize how every little decision within Mormonism is gendered. Everything mm. is gendered. Mm. When you say down to the colors, that is absolutely the case. And the idea that multiple times a week we are separated into genders means something. And so I think that a lot of people think, oh, yeah, non-binary people, mm. we need to see them as androgynous or agender all of the time and not ever think about what it means to be assigned female at birth or be assigned male at birth. But I think those things are really important when you look at Mormonism and the way that a person is brought up. But I don't know how you feel about that. Totally. I think what feels so hard is as we look at inclusion, I think what you're getting at and what I I think we often feel is we have to choose. So even if there's like an inclusive environment, it's like, oh, you can choose I don't feel like I fit great in either. And so where's my space? Is there young men, young women, and young non-binary humans or genderqueer humans? What are our colors? What are our roles, right? Because everything is so this and this. And I think what's interesting is they're often not necessarily pitted against each other, but in that same vein, that the reason why, at least this was a narrative that I was given, that the reason why the roles are given to women versus the roles given to men is because they like, they're supposed to be distributed this way. And that my traits make up for the lack of traits in 
the opposite gender and those type of things. And so it also makes it because I can't remember how many times it's like this idea of the fumbling husband and like the the like wife that like takes care of everything. And that always bugged me because I was like, why are we enabling men to continue to be like bumbling humans? Yet they're the ones supposed to be making the decisions. They're the ones supposed to be like getting guidance from God. Yet they're the ones who can't match their socks. Are you kidding me? <laughs> anyway. It sounds to me that you... <laughs> figured out pretty early on and you embraced your gender and what you enjoyed as far as your your gender euphoria, right? Perhaps more than your attraction or your sexual orientation. I think what's interesting is one of the things that I was thinking about with like my queer story in 60 seconds is like, it changes all the time based on when you meet me. So I think actually the reality was that's not the case. I repressed that hard. I actually, as you're saying that, because I didn't really do Boy Scouts, I, I went to one or two campouts and was like, nope, no, thank you. Not for me. So I would hang out. I would hang out at Young Women's because my mom was Young Women's president while everyone else was like doing their like archery stuff or like whatever that was like I know plenty of like female identified people that would love to shoot bow and arrows and I had bows and arrows anyway so I think that felt a little bit safer and maybe it's because I actually learned how to be a feminist through my mom surprisingly I don't know if she would categorize herself that way but she as a single mom working full time. We lived on a farm. And so there also was like a lot of putting up fences, trimming goat hooves and all of that. And that was very much a part of kind of this feminine energy that was given to me that was taught to me. And so I think in a lot of ways, I learned early on that like, yeah, gender is a little bit less like boom, boom. So I guess to answer your question, or to respond to that, I think yes. I think sexuality was easier to repress or to not even explore because I wasn't meant to be a sexual being until I got married to a woman. So I was like, as long as I don't have to do that, I'm good. I'm golden. We're not going to touch that. No, thank you. So yeah, I think gender was a little bit more explored early on, but not too much. There was always that line that I never wanted to cross or I learned early because I used to wear my mom's skirts. And then at some point, I think... That was told, mm -mm, nope, can't do that. And Barbies were like, nope, not anymore. And any of those things until all of those things were then put away. And now we're reclaiming them. Yay. Yay. Mm -hmm. I do think it's interesting, though, because it sounds like with your story you gave at the beginning, that even with those barriers, you came out first as gay before you then came out as non-binary. So even though totally. you were able to explore your gender in ways when you were younger, you still weren't comfortable or able to come out as non-binary. And I don't know if you can elaborate on what that process was like and coming out first as one more than another, if that makes sense. Yeah, this is fascinating, actually. I don't know if I've ever paired these two things together quite in this way. So thank you all for kind of this exploration and these questions. I think... What feels true is I feel like all of my gender exploration felt like the safest place to put it was in sexual orientation and in sexuality. And so I attributed a lot of what I now understand as nuanced and complex as, oh, that's just what gay boys do. 
oh, gay boys play with Barbies. Oh, gay boys like dresses. Oh, gay boys watch their like sister put on makeup, which I realized not everyone does. And I think was actually more for me, my gender exploration. But I think the reason why sexuality was more on the forefront is as a good Mormon boy, I wanted to do my good Mormon duty and get married. And so I put a concerted effort and kept finding that I would go on these dates with these like fantastic, wonderful, empowered women and want to be friends with them. Felt zero desire for any physical. And so I was like, how am I going to do this? How am I going to possibly procreate if I'm like, hey, you're like great and wonderful, but like nothing, 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 nothing. So I think I just attached all of my gender stuff into this category of sexual orientation because I wasn't given enough nuanced conversations about that. And I just thought, again, gender just this or this. And I just thought, oh, it's not that I'm a non-binary human. I just thought I was a gay man. Yeah, absolutely. I think that this is a, a common experience, especially because Mormonism is <laughs> at least 30, probably 50 years behind in queer theory, in gender theory. And we if we think about how much time a week we dedicate to learning scriptures, reading scriptures, you were doing early morning seminary and going to church on Sunday. That's so much time dedicated mm. to learning your religion that other kids may be learning different things like really? perhaps gender and queerness. So Mormonism, when you're learning the, this Mormon language, you really just don't have the time to learn the other languages as well. And so Mormonism conflates sexuality and gender still to this day in 2022. Yeah. There's so many Mormons that do not know the difference between sexual orientation and gender identity. So it makes sense to me that you didn't have the language and you used the language that you had, which was a conflation. Totally. And I think what's interesting is as you're talking about this, we, I think an important piece also is not only do we not have the time to learn other things, but in order to learn the other things, we have to unlearn the things that we were taught. And so all of these hours are actually spent teaching us non-factual things. Men are from Mars, women are from Venus, or maybe I got that mixed up. I can't remember, <laughs> right? Like that is what we're taught and it's mm -hmm. taught as doctrine and as truth and as science. It was interesting as I studied human development and family studies and wanted to be a marriage and family therapist, I think there still persists people who study relationships that continue to perpetuate ideas that are not grounded in science. And so it continues to exist because there are also people who are learned who say, yeah, this is the case. And I think that's not the case. I think we recognize that's not the case, but maybe, yeah, we can come back into this. This is a soapbox of mine. <laughs> No, no, I'm here for this soapbox because I'm also a therapist and in working with just doing CEUs and working with individuals, working with couples, so much of the science and research is still so heteronormative and binary. And so I've had to like unsubscribe from some podcasts, decide mm -hmm. to no longer pursue certain CEU trainings because I'm like, this mm -hmm. heteronormative assumptions, you're making these binary assumptions just mm -hmm. great on me. And this is yeah. not... 
my lived experience. This is not the lived experience of my clients. And I feel like this is not helping me become a better therapist. So I am here for all this discussion. Totally. And I'm, I think the real like fuego or the real like fire energy is I think as therapists, we're charged with doing no harm. And I don't think that these are benign either. And so also there's a real fire where I'm like, I was like, if we perpetuate incorrect things and harmful things, we're going against our like moral and ethical mandates as healers and therapists. And so we need to do a better job. It's we need to stop. Period. Boom. We need to stop with that. Like unlearn your shit. Like figure figure out, take a pause, take an absence, figure out your stuff so you don't continue to perpetuate this harm. And I think what's interesting and the whole reason why I came to Utah to study queer identity development is I kept getting in my office, even in Oregon, a lot of people who were coming to see me and the trauma healing that I was doing was from other therapists, that actually the trauma was in the therapy room. It was the microaggressions. It was the assumptions being made. It was the way people handled coming out. And so I would get these clients that one were distrustful of therapy and me as a therapist. And then two, as we got to the trauma healing, part of that was this experience of seeing my therapist's eyes when I said that I was queer, or when I said that I was gay, or when I said that I was non-binary, or the question that then followed up as far as did I have any trauma as a kid, and all of the, right? And I was like, there's no way that I can continue to like do this. I want to stop it at the source. I want to help therapists be better therapists so that we can quit harming our clients in this way. And so it's very a very strong soapbox, Colette. Let's go. We, I got this. You tell me when. <laughs> Where can I hold signs? I'll think about it and get back to you because I'm still figuring it out. I'm still deconstructing, but I've had those same experiences with clients. And I have clients that seek me out specifically because they know they assume, and I hope they assume correctly, that with my lived experience, I'm not going to have the same microaggressions or bring the same sort of things to therapy that maybe they've had from other therapists. And so it's a tough space. And I really admire you coming back to Utah because this can be a traumatizing environment as healers ourselves. Especially, funny, funny side note story. When I told one of my friends when I was first coming out, she told me later, she's like, I had this dream that you moved to Oregon to a lesbian commune and didn't tell anybody. And I'm like, there would be a lesbian commune in Oregon. <laughs> there, there would be. Like, like spoken from experience, there would be. And I'm here for that. <laughs> and so it's yeah. funny in my mind with that story in mind that you went from Oregon, which is yeah. a queer haven, I'm assuming if you're more especially in like the Portland area. Yeah, the west side. That you then come to Utah, which is just not as accepting of any queer identities. Yeah, I think... I wasn't quite prepared for what it would be like for me as a human to be back in this environment. This is the source of a lot of my trauma. And so coming back has been incredibly healing, I think, as well, because to be able to be an out, vibrant, non-binary human, to wear heels in City Creek, walking around Temple Square in a, a sparkly top or a dress or a skirt, full face of makeup feels actually incredibly healing to say like, oh, I actually don't need to run away. 
I don't actually need to leave in order to be my full self. And the surprise that I have where how some people really respond positively, I think, to it. I've had a lot of moments of, I'm trying to think of how to categorize it, but just this real celebration as I'm like in the grocery store, as I'm at Harmon's, all the people who are like there helping me just really enforcing that I like am celebrated and seen in my fullness, which I think is like really beautiful and unexpected, especially in Harmon's. You know what I mean? Maybe not especially in Harmon's, but just like here in Utah, I'm like, oh, I could expect it there in Oregon. But here it actually is a really powerful thing for me to be my full self in this environment. Can you talk about that decision? Because you you met your husband in grad school. So he's also a therapist? So he went to Oregon a couple years before me. He's a poet. He got his MFA from Oregon State and was there in Corvallis. And I moved to Eugene at the University of Oregon and we met online. And only after talking a little bit did we find out that we both came from Mormon roots. We were talking about our missions on our first date and Celine Dion <laughs> and all the things. And then he was like, oh, my family's from Sandy. And I was like, oh, my family lives in Caseville. And so it was like this real like kind of like, wow, okay. But yeah, the decision to come back. I think Oregon was a really beautiful place to explore. But being that I am the good Mormon boy that I am, or was, hmm, interesting. Family is such an important piece. And I love my family. And I think my family is, we have navigated a lot of things together, but I think that we have this real deep connection throughout it. And so... I was really wanting to be a good teal, a good uncle. And I felt like I was missing a lot of the like beautiful things with my littles, my little humans. And so that was part of the motivation. But a lot of it was specifically to study queer identity development among my people. I think part of me, I was 12 when I decided I wanted to be a therapist. And so I'm living my dream, doing what I've always thought that I wanted to do. But I think part of that is specifically working with my communities. I think that there's a real resonance and a real power of that shared experience, that shared lens, sometimes that shared trauma that also then allows us to really get to the healing piece because of that understanding and maybe that somatic understanding. So anyway, long story short, Utah felt like a scary place to come, but also the best place to come to specifically work with this group of people. And I was in academia for a little bit and then determined that was not for me. I was two years into a PhD program and there were some really not great things that were happening. See conversation about soapbox and all of those. So I decided that, yeah, I also deserve to be in spaces that are celebratory. I don't subscribe to the sacrificial lamb mentality. And so I believe that I can also be well as I'm trying to help other people to be well. And that my job is not to put myself in toxic situations in order to help other people. That's actually like a an unfair position to put any of us in, that we have to be the sacrifice. So anyway, left academia and moved into my current role right now, which is working specifically with this population and families. And so then we decided to put down roots. And so we made the decision to stay here in Utah, at least for the foreseeable future, bought a house, which was a really scary thing. Cause then I'm like, oh, now there's no like real easy escape, but it's been meaningful. And I'm glad we did it though. I probably just would have been more prepared for my own trauma responses coming back and what it would mean to have certain identities telling me I can and can't do certain things. Yeah, that was a real bristle for me. I'm like, oh, 
this feels like I'm used to this. I'm used to men in positions of power telling me what I should or shouldn't do. And I don't like that. And I don't want to do, deal with that. So. And do you still see, we know as <laughs> queer individuals, or can guess, where are you still getting these messages being back in Utah? Where is it coming from that you're having to push back against? Oh, I feel like my first answer is everywhere, but I, mean, I think specifically, I think, I think so much of this is, oh, what a big conversation. I think a lot of our structures and systems are designed in a way that reinforces gender hierarchy. And that gender hierarchy requires an adherence to a gender binary. And so I think it's in all of our systems, it's in organization structures, it's in productivity mindset, it's in academic spaces, it's in supervisory relationships, who holds the power, who are most licensed, but also then who are typically the supervisors. I think that there's a disproportionate of cishet Mormon men as supervisors in particularly my field, even though that isn't the majority of licensed therapists. And so there's also then this like, huh, who's holding the power? Who gets to say like, this is what you should do in this situation? Who's being trusted? And so I think a lot of my quote unquote fight is trying to interrogate like, why do we do the things that we do? Why do we have the rules that we have? Who decided these rules? I think we know who decided these rules. And can't we decide new rules as we understand more about things? And I think research is a big area where I push back because I think there's a lot of, a lot of conversations about research, who we focus on, how we ask the questions, what way of knowing do we even privilege as like the ultimate truth with a capital T. If we're looking at lit reviews and those type of things, that means that we're inherently just perpetuating what was already done before. And so a lot of my research in looking at queer identity development is steeped in toxicity, right? Yeah. Comes from the same energies that at one point said is sexual orientation and gender identity can be changed. And in fact, that should be our role as therapists is to help people achieve that goal. And who am I to say that's not, right? We all recognize that that's bullshit, that's toxic, that's harmful, that's abuse, that shouldn't be categorized as therapy, anything close to that, right? Because I think oftentimes we interact with reparative light therapy, which anyway, I think these are some of the systems where I put bash on out, like are people, if they're working with a LGBTQI plus person, how are they unpacking their own assumptions of the gender binary? What does it look like for them? in their personal and professional lives. It's not enough just to say, oh, I'm helping you with anxiety. Because I think often what we know as queer humans is some of my anxiety is steeped in the world is unfriendly. So it's actually an incredibly adaptive response for me to monitor every situation and go through every escape plan and to look at like small cues of belonging or non-belonging. And so who am I to say that's maladaptive? Maybe you should stop that here are some tools to do that. I'm like, no, keep doing that. I do that too. It keeps us safe. It keeps us alive. And so I think, yeah. Anyway, I think I got off on a little tangent so we can bring me back. I'm here for all of that. Thank you. I think we're all doing the work, hopefully, to continue to unpack. I know that one reason I'm receiving 
further training in sex therapy mm-hmm. so I can continue mm-hmm. to unpack some of my assumptions and binary thinking that totally. comes from being in a very heteronormative binary world. Can we transition to talk a little bit about you came back to Utah and you're talking about communities. What I hear you saying is that you feel a communal connection between family, a sense that you want to help Mormonism grow and be better. You want, you're part of the therapy community and a queer community. Mm-hmm. Do you identify as Latinx as well? Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. Thanks for bringing that in because that's a very, actually, I think my specific niche is working with people who I think we would call multiply marginalized. So people who not only have been oppressed by systems of the gender binary, heteronormativity, cisnormativity, but also in white supremacy, systemic racism, other systems of oppression. So yes, I do. Multi, what did you call it? Multiply marginalized. Multiply marginalized. That's great. I think that's the term that I've heard and it's the term that I use. It seems to convey our experiences pretty well. Okay. I would like to ask about your Latinx uh, background, if that's okay, because it sounds like there was a struggle early on to decide about how much you want to identify with that portion of your identity. Is that right? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think so. I think one of the one of the interesting things I think about my identity with Latinidad is it came through my dad and my parents got divorced pretty early. I was five. And so that inherently created this disconnect from that source of Latinidad, of understanding my culture and my heritage. And I think the hard thing, and I'm hesitating just a little bit because I'm like, whew, This is like both personal and professional, but I think it's an important part of the conversation is to be a person of color, specifically, I think an immigrant to this country is the source of a lot of trauma. And I think sometimes the response to that trauma, what we see, and I'm probably going to speak more more professionally because that feels a little safer, is culturation, is assimilation, is this fear of, I don't want my children to have to go through the same struggles that I did. And so I know for us growing up, we weren't taught Spanish because of things like accents. At least that's what I've been been able to understand is if I, as a brown person, have an accent, I'm put in a lower position in this hierarchy in our system. And so if I want my children to succeed in this system, in this society, I need to try and ensure that they have the least amount of barriers possible. So I think that there were some passive ways that I was disconnected from my Latinidad, but also I think that there were some maybe active responses to unfriendly and toxic environments that then meant that we were pretty disconnected. We're the only, me, my brother, and my sister are the only brown-skinned members of our here in Utah family. So that was also, most of my cousins are like six foot, blue-eyed, blonde hair, very like Western European phenotype And so we were also like, oh, we're a little bit shorter, have different complexions, hair compositions, those type of things. So I think it was a confusing experience for us as young humans to try and place, what does this mean? Who am I? And I think another tangent that we could go on that we don't have to go on is race within the Mormon context and the way that that has been really harmful to my relationship to 
my brown skin, being called a Lamanite. And what that means in our culture, even in an endearing way, sends a message of non-belonging. And I think some of the the theology, at least that I was taught, is this light-skinnedness, that the closer you are to divinity, the lighter your skin is. And so what does that mean for me as a queer person of color? Anyway. One one thing that we talk about, we've brought up in several episodes, is that not only is there an assimilation that takes place within Mormonism and Utah specifically on the ground, terrestrially as in this world, but uh-huh. there is another assimilation, an afterlife, that you're supposed to be these certain things in order to get into Mormon heaven, which resembles whiteness. And I think that we don't often talk about whiteness as an objective for the celestial kingdom. We think that, oh, we, everybody belongs there, but they, I, they, I don't think that people recognize what assimilation really is and what that looks like in an afterlife. Totally. I think if we're going there, I think it's fascinating also the worldwide church that isn't actually a worldwide cultural church, that we perpetuate uh, a very white American, which we can talk about that ideal of worship, of understanding self, of even ways of differentiating and compartmentalizing is a very like Western way of doing things. And so I find it really interesting and I think is why I often wrestle with my mission because I'm like, oh, I was the colonizer. I I experienced two years where I thought I was doing like really meaningful work and I was just perpetuating white saviorism that I somehow was going to help these poor impoverished human being. So rather than participate in an exchange, it was me saying, oh, what your thing is like cute and fun and something now I can order like tacos at the taco stand in Spanish, but I'm not actually unpacking my own assumptions of the world and why we privilege certain things. I'm saying, oh, you must want to do what I do. You must want to wear a white shirt and tie. You must want to cut your hair in a certain way which is a very like white Western style, right? Even these ideas of like hairstyles, how long our hair is steeped in our own white supremacist culture. Can we just go back a little bit and can you help us unpack the term Latinidad? Is that, did I say that right? Yeah, 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 yeah. I, I think when I think about Latinidad, it's like the, the, the noun for all things connected to Latin culture, Latin heritage, Latin identity. So Latinidad feels like the noun form. Great. I wanted to ask you that because I want to ask you about the term Latinx. I don't actually Ooh. know how to pronounce that as a non-binary person yeah. because I'm in Romania and we do the same thing in Romanian. You put that X to mark out a gender and it is being rejected within the non-binary community. So I wondered if you could elaborate on that. Yes, as concisely as possible, because this is actually a really important but ongoing conversation. I actually was collaborating with another colleague in Michigan about writing a chapter for working with Latinx, Latine communities. A, the Latine is an E instead of an X. That fits actually a little bit better in Spanish language, which is why I use the pronouns AA 
when speaking Spanish. So I use they, them, he, him, and ella in Spanish because ella is the, the more gender neutral or non-binary form. But it's interesting because there's people who recognize that the X serves a really important purpose and others who feel like it is another form of colonization, of bringing in this like white Western understanding of gender language and then saying, oh, let's transpose that into these other languages. However, I think the nuanced conversation to this that I find also fascinating is Spanish is actually the language of our colonizer. It's the language of our oppressor. And how do we reconcile that? What are our conversations about our indigenous languages in a lot of these Latin American cultures, communities? Spanish wasn't the language that was organic to these areas. We were taught this language. And yeah, it's nuanced. It's interesting. I prefer the term Latine with an E. I feel like it's more congruent, but it often then, I think language is a way of communicating important things. And so in certain contexts, it takes more energy to explain the nuances of the E versus the X. And what I'm trying to convey is inclusive Latinidad. And so I will opt for the X in those circumstances. And that's what I was taught in my academic spaces. So also I'm going through a process of unlearning myself. Does that make sense? Absolutely. Thank you for explaining that. Maybe... It's helpful if you can give just a little bit of background into Spanish and talking about why the they, them pronouns don't translate. I think this is hard for people who don't know a romance language specifically to understand why you can't just use they, them pronouns. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So Spanish, the way that Spanish is designed is it's a very gender language. And language words are divided into two categories. They either end in an O or they end in an A. They're either masculine or feminine. Tarea, the homework. Somehow homework is feminine. I'm trying to think of uh, uh, like masculine, but it ends in an O and it's L before that. And when you're like talking about people, it's very gendered. What, how you end a word is connected to the gender composition of either the person or the group, which also is fascinating because if you have one male identified person in a group, it then switches to the masculine, even if it's 35 female identified, which we can all talk about that. And maybe my side note is machismo is not inherent to Latinidad. Machismo is also uh, a colonized concept or a colonizer concept. And so I feel really strongly because I think often when people talk about Latin America, specifically, I think Latinx or Latine people, they often say, oh, machismo and machismo. And I'm like, like, Mormonism is steeped maybe more in like toxic masculinity than like Latin America cultures. And that's not organic to my people that was brought over. That's a more like Western puritanical Christian concept. So did I answer your question or did I get too far off of it? No, you're on track, but can you just give the end of that, which is, so you're talking about the A and the O to end a word, which is either masculine or feminine. Can you talk about pronouns specifically and why you can't use they, them, why you wouldn't use the plural third person in Spanish? 
I don't know okay. if I can actually, I'm not, I'm not as studied in like language. My mom's actually a Spanish teacher. So I, I should call her up right now and be like, mom, can, can you help me with this? I I'm just, sorry. Uh, no, 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 no. What's your understanding of it? I'd love to learn and hear. Oh, no, this is, oh. it's hard for me in Romanian to try to understand this, but I don't know Spanish. I never learned Spanish. So I, I don't know exactly how it functions there. That's why I was asking the question. But I, I think maybe in a, in a nutshell, that's what the maybe E can do. So if it's so any word that you would say, los chicos, the boys, you would say les chiques, which would then be a gender neutral. So you would switch the O's to an E to be inclusive and representative of what we would consider maybe they, them, amigues, rather than amigos or amigas. Perfect. Thank you so much. You learned You're Spanish welcome. on your mission then? Yes, that right? I did. Yes, yes, yes. And what, yeah. you said you went um, to California, right? No, Monterey, Mexico. Oh, Monterey, Mexico. Okay. There, there is a Monterey, California, and I was living in California, and I remember opening up my mission call and being like, Monterey? <laughs> I'm going like an hour away. What? <laughs> it was not that. It was definitely not Monterey, California. No, Monterey, which there you can see like my accent, which I also think is an interesting thing. I feel like I got my mother's tongue as far as like the, it doesn't pronounce the Spanish words the way that I want it to. And so I also wrestle with what does that mean? How to show up in spaces when it, it's fairly obvious that I didn't grow up speaking the language as fluently as I would like. But what's interesting is I feel like in therapy, what's really beautiful and helpful is I think there's an inherent power differential for us as therapists. And it creates this real like leveling because it's like, oh, wait, actually, I'm a human as well. And I'm learning these words or I'm interacting with these words. And so let's co-create together as opposed to this kind of perpetuation that I'm this all-knowing wise all powerful like sources like no let's interact with that it, it humanizes me I think a little bit in the therapy room which I really value and appreciate so you provide therapy services in Spanish as well as English oh mm -hmm. that's so cool my favorite is Spanglish though <laughs> I love when it is like a mixture and one of the interesting things which maybe isn't needed here but sometimes what I've noticed especially where I focus a lot on like trauma is sometimes the trauma happens in Spanish. And so the healing also needs to happen in Spanish. And so my ability to be able to speak Spanish to process the specific trauma, I think has been incredibly helpful and invaluable because I can't imagine what it would be like to try to translate some of these traumatic experiences while we're also in an activated state. I actually think that's really important and really interesting. I see that when I'm talking with people, mm -hmm. Romanians who speak with me mostly in English, that when they're mm -hmm. talking about something difficult, there are certain things that your mind does in your native language automatically. Mm -hmm. One is numbers. Another is swearing. And it seems like this would be the, that, the same as swearing. Like you need to, it triggers something that isn't necessarily just language. Totally. I'd love to hear a little bit more about mm -hmm. what it's been like for you and your husband being a queer couple, being back in Utah, and what that's been like. Claire, what a timely question. So we went to the grocery store right before this, 
And this is like a tangent and then we can get to like the nitty gritty of it. But there's a lovely cashier who is so kind and so celebratory of us every time we come in. But today she was like, this is a random question. Are you all ever going to get kids? And I was like, uh, that's a big question. And she's like, I just think you'd be great parents. And I was like, oh, and as we were driving home, we were like, oh, sweet baby angel. This is a really big question and conversation and complicated and can be traumatic. And so that's a really bold, interesting question. Kind of sweet, but also kind of, kind of a lot. And so I think maybe that's, that can be representative of what it means to be a queer relationship here. My husband and I are also polyamorous. And so there's also then this like, this real trying to unpack what relationships mean, what relationships look like, which I think is also really interesting given our cultural history with um, polygamy and the the power hierarchies implicit in that form of multiple relationship configurations. So anyway, that didn't answer your question though. What's it like? Complex. I think more and more also as I express myself in a more visibly queer way. When my husband and I got together, I was very like masculine presenting and still non-binary wasn't a, I don't know, masculine presenting, like masculine-esque presenting, right? Loved floral shirts. But yeah, gender has been a really interesting thing. And so trying to figure out what that means for both of us to exist in the world in a very, very visible way as an interracial couple, as a queer couple, sometimes we feel like there's a lot of spotlight on us and maybe not always the most friendly spotlight. I think we've held hands in public maybe once or twice, which I think is is a huge tragedy. I think for us as queer humans and queer relationships is even when we find our people and create these meaningful relationships and have a lot of love, I don't know if we're ever going to get to a point where it feels safe internally, where it actually feels like a comfortable thing, even though I love physical touch and would love to hold his hand And I'm very close to him whenever we're at home. But even sometimes with friends and all of those things, like there's still this feeling of what does it mean for us to be physically expressive? And are we being too visible or too much? Where sometimes I look at my straight friends or family members and I'm like, y'all are doing PDA all the time, like just without even thinking about it. And we're always thinking about it. I have a couple questions going off of that. One is... The first one is, how does your partner, your husband, how did you have that conversation about my identity is non-binary? Mm. I am a non-binary person and how that impacts how he sees himself. Yeah. Oh, fantastic question. To be determined. Ongoing conversations <laughs> about this. Philip, my husband, is probably the best, kindest human I've ever met in my entire life and feel really grateful to be in relationship with him. And I think part of that has been, he has been such a beautiful energy throughout my exploration process, which I know not everyone has that support. Doesn't mean that there haven't been bumps along the way, that there have been some times where I've worn heels and been like, is this too much? And he's like, "Uh, maybe it's too much, right? As we're unpacking our own, like, uh, can somebody with a mustache wear heels as well? What does that mean? What does that look like? 
if I identify as a gay man, speaking for him, what does it mean if my person is very femme presenting and identifies as non-binary? Are we still a gay couple? Are we not a gay couple? Does he still get to qualify or whatever? And so I think within our relationship, I don't think labels really matter or need to matter. And I think in a lot of ways, there hasn't quite been the conversation around what does that mean if he presents himself as like a gay, if he says, hey, I'm gay and this is my husband, which we still use the term husband because spouse feels incongruent, which also this is the thing that I think often people don't really understand about the non-binary identities is that I'm fine with my mom calling me her son and my sister calling me her like baby brother. That doesn't rub me the wrong way. It doesn't create distress. But for others, it does. And they want a gender neutral term. And so we need to be careful not to like slap on, oh, you're non-binary. That must mean that you need the gender neutral term for like a spouse and a gender neutral or to like hear my mom say like, oh, I just love my son so much. And people say, are you like, are you misgendering this human? And I'm like, no, that's, these are conversations that I get to have with my family as far as like how I feel safe and supported within those relationships. And so I think for my husband and I, we've been really exploring one, what does it mean for like our relationship? But then we haven't quite gotten to, does that change the way that we present ourselves to family or to the larger world as far as are we husbands? Are we spouses? Are we significant others? Does that answer the question? A hundred percent. That is great. I really appreciate that answer because I feel it the same way. I want to, to think of myself different ways. I want to be addressed the way that my partner would address me is going to, is just different than the way that mm. somebody that I want somebody else to see me because my lesbian identity is really important to me. And I, I want to connect with that person on that level. So I, I think it's really important what you're saying that people need to be just be asking the questions like how do you want to be addressed totally <laughs> yep and i think in a lot of ways not interfering when it doesn't involve you like what my uh, the the term that my sister uses with me gets to be the term that my sister and i use you don't have to step into that you don't have to like be worried or concerned and that actually doesn't change if i'm asking you to like refer to me in a certain way just because it's safe and connective for my sister to use a more gendered term doesn't mean that my non-binary identity is any less important in other contexts. And so I think that's also a really important piece to this that I want to name is my non-binary identity gets to exist in its fullness, regardless of how other people refer to me or yep. what feels safe. Exactly. Or exactly. I don't know how much time you have and if you want to dive into this conversation, but we haven't talked to someone I don't believe that identifies as polyamorous. And that is really complicated with the Mormon background and the very different way that polygamy was practiced. Would you be willing to talk about that part of your identity? Yeah, as much as I can. I think it's a, a newer part of my identity and one that I think is less fully understood 
by me. But I would love to share what I do understand about that experience and kind of talk through the nuances. Because yeah, I think very much context matters. And in this case, context very much matters. I don't know what specific questions I have, but how did you come into that identity? I feel like it is still very frowned upon in especially Mormon feminist spaces because Mm. polygamy is bad. And it's been interesting learning from the polyamorous community that like, actually it's can be very beautiful. And so I'm just curious, how did you even come into that identity with maybe some already built in biases against it coming, growing up Mormon? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Great question. I think the way that I first recognized it was friendships. I have always had lots of best friends. And I've always had people that I love deeply and profoundly and care about. And I noticed that my ability to be best friends with one person was not limited by my ability to be best friends with somebody else. That I actually had a pretty expansive capacity for love, for care, for awareness, for attunement. And so I think early on, I always joked where I was like, I have so many best friends and all of these things. And then as I was more coming into like sexuality and sexual orientation and that ability to connect with somebody, I think first and foremost, the way that it showed up was sexuality. Cause I think we're often told a really limited view on sex. It's kind of that idea of like, oh, if you can only invest it in one human being and If you've experienced sexual expressions with anyone else, that limits your ability to experience sexuality with your partner, which is the whole, like, I only have one partner and there's a real value around that. And if I, if, even if I like masturbate, that somehow like that is like, I'm, I'm wasting my sexual energy or my sexual capacity. And I think for me, I was like, that doesn't actually feel the case. And it kind of was smaller conversations as far as and I I know this is also a really interesting juxtaposition but like Andrew Garfield beautiful incredible and both my husband and I were like oh what a cutie and we would have these moments right where we would be like we would both say oh my gosh look how attractive that person is or like really like sweet tender friends we'd be like oh I feel like I kind of have a cute little crush on this friend and like those type of conversations within our relationship that didn't feel threatening I wasn't like, I'm less attractive because you find another person attractive, if that makes sense. And so bridging those things together and saying like, oh, maybe the way we've been conceptualizing relationships doesn't quite fit for us. We already have this community mindset. We already have friendships. Why must we limit the friendships or predetermine the friendships rather than allow the relationships to grow in the way that they need to grow. If that includes cuddling, why can't it include cuddling? I cuddle with my best friend all the time, right? Love her to death. And we are like, we tried dating for a little bit, didn't quite work, but we cuddled and I think we're really good cuddlers. And so I hold her hand as we're like going out. And so why can't that just be a fluid piece of relationships as opposed to me saying, I need to limit this. I need to stop this. I need to predetermine beforehand all of the possibilities instead of saying I'm going to be intentional and engage in conversations with my partner and with other people along the way, which inherently is going to increase connection across the board. Because if I'm communicating more, there's more understanding, if that makes sense. I hope it's okay if I interject here and guide our listeners through something that you're talking about. 
because this is a piece of colonization. Mm -hmm. But to get to that mm -hmm. element, we, there are some steps we have to take that you've drawn really great lines for us. First of all, you've talked about in the beginning, you've talked about how there are we have to deconstruct what we think that we know. There's so much that we think that we know. And one of those things is that we understand how relationships work and that you're supposed to find one person that is supposed you're supposed to have sexual attraction for and romantic feelings for and get all of the other things that you need from that one person. Totally. And it seems much more likely... <laughs> That if we deconstruct that, if we're going through that deconstruction process, that we recognize there are lots of people that can give us lots of different things, exactly as you're saying, that you're getting these friendships, you're getting romantic, you have some sort of romantic orientation as well as a sexual orientation that play differently with different people. Mm -hmm. But then the move to the next step is to talk about what marriage means and marriage as a legal colonizing institution Ooh, so yes <laughs> maybe you can talk about marriage and what marriage means for you and why marriage is important to you it seems like it's important maybe it's not yeah who these are these are big conversations i i think in the best possible way <laughs> okay if it's too oh, much please just tell us okay 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 yeah Oh, I think maybe the most congruent way to start with this is the way that I interact with marriage. The legal institution of marriage is that ability to find home and partnership and lifelong experiences with another human being. And I feel like there has been a real strong emphasis in my upbringing and my socialization of kind of marriage, the beauty of it. I love wedding dresses, which I recognize the real problem with wedding dresses and I struggle with it, but I think they are so beautiful. <laughs> I think that I've always found them so like, my friend used to work at a wedding dress shop and I would go there while I was an undergrad and just see all the different dresses and feel the different fabrics. And I found them so Ugh, beautiful and stunning. And so the concept, the celebration, the ritual of love and joining partnership, I think is so beautiful and so meaningful. And we live in a legal system that affords us certain protections, hopefully in an ongoing yeah, way. Right. Um, <laughs> conversation for another day. And so I think for us, marriage is like, First and foremost, Philip is my person. Philip is the person that I've made the conscious decision to form my life with, to focus on, to navigate the difficulties with. And that works for us and that fits for us. And part of that is also sharing in growth and development and expansive understandings of self. And so I don't feel like our marriage is threatened or any less than because of our ongoing experiences maybe with other people just like my like 
watching a Netflix show with my husband and having like our like thing isn't threatened by me also having my favorite show with my best friend that then we like talk about and we say like, oh my gosh, can you believe that this person did this? And they're like, oh my, it doesn't, they don't have to be in contrast to each other. They don't have to threaten each other. And so I think that's where my relationship is with marriage. Though sometimes I, as I grow and develop, I wonder what my relationship would be like now as I've deconstructed a lot of the things and been like, oh, is this really a requirement? Do I really need this? Which I think sometimes I worry is a real nuanced conversation. And I worry that sometimes it could be taken in the wrong spirit as we are advocating for our rights. And as we're saying, we fought really hard for marriage equality. So in some ways, I don't want to, I don't want my relationship with it and my criticism healthy critique of the the institution to be misconstrued in any way as to say like the ability and right to get married in the the system that we have is any less important. I think that is really beautiful. I think it's so cool to be making the conscious effort to be a partner with somebody. I think that is what you're getting at, that it's not this like compulsivity to constantly do all the things with the one person. It's a choice. I'm making the choice to be with this person, which is really cool. And making the choice to be together. You're both making the choice to be together. Just real quick. One of the things that I think came up is also the security that I am secure in this relationship with this person, that his joy and celebration, his like fun with somebody else also doesn't have to feel insecure. Yeah. And so it has been like a meaningful and uh, a meaningful piece to be able to share in all of the things. When he gets a poem published, I get to say, oh my gosh, great, wonderful. I'm so excited. And if he's excited about another person, I get to also be excited and say, oh my gosh, how wonderful, how beautiful that you as another human being gets to share joy and you're sharing that with me. (gasps) Why wouldn't I be excited about it? Yeah, that's really cool. But you both got together in 2014, you said? 2015, the end of 2015. Okay, so so marriage equality had just passed in 2015. Just passed, which I think is wild sometimes to think about it that... In my lifetime, in my dating time, there was a point where if I would have found my person, I could have gotten married. That's wild to me. Sometimes I think we forget how close we are to that and how there are cohorts or generations of us that are still reconciling with what that means as far as it was a fight. Yeah. And I think the really interesting thing that maybe is neither here nor there is part of my growth and development as a human being is at one point I held a sign against same-sex marriage. There was a real push in 2008 when I was living in California for the protection of marriage. Prop 8 was a real big thing. And because of my connection to my religion of origin, I held a sign on a corner like defending marriage. And I remember there were some people who were like yelling at us saying how bad that was. And in my mind, I was like, I'm just doing what the Lord wants me to do. Why would anyone be mad at this? And now I think, oh my gosh, that feels very representative of our capacity as human beings to grow and to change, to unlearn things. And I think that's a really helpful place that just because we were 
a certain type of person or held certain beliefs or advocated for certain things doesn't mean that we have to carry that with us, that we get to morph and change and evolve. This has been so good and we could keep talking to you forever, but we should probably let you get on with your day. <laughs> mm-hmm. So is there anything as we wrap up that you wish we had asked you or that you wanted to talk about that we haven't talked about yet? You know, it's interesting. I feel like part of my ongoing conversation is how to interact with my socialization as a man and the male privilege that maybe comes with some of that and what that means to have some forms of oppression as being a non-binary human and that that doesn't excuse me from ongoing work and exploration and unpacking of the ways in which my socialization and the privileges afforded me may actually be harmful to other people. And so I think that's been a really important piece of my journey in non-binariness is, yeah, still trying to unpack that, that I continue to, I think one of the most like prevalent one is I continue to position my femininity in traditional feminine characteristics and traits, right? Wearing heels, eyeliner, long hair, smelling like flowers. And I have to engage with where does that come from? And is that actually my feminine energy? Or is that my socialization in what it means to be feminine? And what does that then mean? How do I engage with these expressions that feel really meaningful for me, and not further perpetuate harm by saying that's what femininity is, end of story. I don't know where that fits in this conversation. But I think that feels very present for me in my ongoing exploration of self. Yeah, I think that is super self-aware. That's super self-aware of what's happening. But I think that this is a larger conversation within the trans community as a whole. And I think all of us are grappling with what these things mean. But it's not just the way that we are socialized. It's not just the way that we perceive femininity and masculinity. It's also the way that other people perceive us too. And so there is an element of non-binary femmes, trans mm. women who embrace this almost hype, what we would call hyper femininity, because totally. it's a way to get other people to react to the person that they are and want to be. And I feel that way. Like I, I bind my chest when I'm in social situations because I want to other people to perceive me the way that I know myself to be. And so totally. this is totally a conversation that's happening within the trans community. And mm. I think that lots of times there are, very, there are a lot of feminists who don't think that conversation's even happening. That they, right. <laughs> yep. And so I have a lot of empathy for you going through that mm. and trying mm. to grapple with that. And I respect that a lot. Mm. And I hope that people listen to that, that people understand mm. that we understand these things are socializations, but they're totally. still in a world we have to interact with. Totally. And I think they can, they can be a really powerful and meaningful tool. And I think for us as human beings, just across the board, our job or our charge is introspection and intentionality. And I think I feel, I was talking to somebody the other day about maybe the gifts of non-binariness. And I think one of the gifts is intentionality, that I get to make intentional and conscious decisions about presentation, about identity, about the way that I show up, 
I'm very much not following a script. And that feels really beautiful and meaningful that I get to live my life intentionally in an ongoing way. I really value that. Yeah, I love that. That's awesome. Thank you. This has been so good. And I'm very much looking forward to meeting you in person one day. Yes. <laughs> so not Let's just make on it social happen. media. Yes. Thank you again so much for your time. This has been really wonderful. Thank you. Thanks for listening. We appreciate you joining us today. If you're liking these episodes, we'd love it if you'd rate and review Called to Queer on the podcast player of your choice so that other people are more likely to find us. We'd also love it if you'd share our podcast with a friend who could benefit from hearing these stories. If you want to contact us, you can reach us at hello at calledtoqueer.com. You can also follow us on Facebook and Instagram at calledtoqueer. See you next time.